and we're live with Be Green with Amy. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Be Green with Amy. I'm Amy. Back in 2012, I adopted a whole food plant-based lifestyle, and I have had fantastic results. My husband, Rick, and I, together, we lost a combined oh, over 130 pounds. And today, we're prescription-free, and we're healthy, and we just feel better than we did back in 2012. Just has voice. Let's welcome our guest. Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn is featured on the documentary Forks Over Knives and is the author of Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn has been plant-based since 1984 and presently directs the Cardiovascular Prevention and Reversal Program at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute. Be Green with Amy welcomes Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. Greetings and welcome, Dr. Esselstyn. Thank you. I am so honored that you are here. And when I began promoting our event today, it was unbelievable how many people were cheering and thrilled that you were going to be here with us. Thank so you. So you are just well-respected and well-received, and I am just honored that you are giving your time to us today. We have a lot of people in the audience who are looking to prevent and reverse heart disease and maybe other lifestyle-related diseases as well. And there are some people, I hope, I hope that there are some people that are coming on today and may never, which is unbelievable, but may never have even heard of you so that we can introduce more people to what you do. So maybe you can introduce yourself to maybe those that have not heard of you before, if there could be anybody in the universe that has. Well, the background is interesting because uh, when I went through uh, Yale as an undergraduate, I... Uh, took the pre-med uh, courses and I went to medical school at, at Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland. And from there, I took my internship and surgical residency at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And after completing my residency, I was in the army for two years. My first year, I was uh, the general surgeon at <clears throat> Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And the second year, I was a combat surgeon in Vietnam. Then I returned from Vietnam, and I was invited by the Cleveland Clinic to join the staff uh, in the Department of General Surgery, where I subsequently became chairman of the Breast Cancer Task Force and head of the section on thyroid and parathyroid surgery. <clears throat> now, the thing that was uh, of interest was that by 1979, 1980, I became increasingly disillusioned with the fact that for no matter how many women I was doing breast cancer surgery, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim. So this led me to do a bit of global research. And it was truly quite striking to find that there were multiple cultures on the planet where breast cancer rates were 30 and 40 times less frequent than in the United States. And if you looked at uh, rural uh, Japan in the 1950s, breast cancer was very infrequently identified. And yet, uh, interestingly, as soon as the Japanese women would migrate to the United States by the, by the second and third generation, still pure Japanese American, they now had the same rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterpart. Perhaps uh, even more powerful was the story of prostate cancer. In the entire nation of Japan <clears throat> in 1958, how many autopsy proven deaths were there from cancer of the prostate? 18, the most mind boggling public health figure I think I've ever encountered. By 1978, 20 years later, they were up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 men who will die this year from prostate cancer in the United States. So somewhere along this line, it became a, uh, really a, an awareness on my part that there would probably be much more bang for the buck if we, if we could really look at 
cardiovascular disease, which is the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization. Because along the line of this global research I was doing, it was apparent that there were multiple cultures where cardiovascular disease was virtually non-existent. And uh, it was kind of a dream to think that if we could get people to eat, like those cultures where cardiovascular disease is virtually non-existent, and they would protect themselves from developing heart disease, they would likely diminish significantly the likelihood of the common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, and pancreatic. So that became sort of the, the mantra which I was going after. And I realized that you just can't sort of say, <laughs> you can't just say to walk up to people and say you ought to be eating plant-based to save yourself from heart disease. Well, I knew there was research that had to be done. So I uh, decided that I would have to do a bit of research on cardiovascular disease. Now, I knew I was going to do this research, but uh, whenever you're having a lifestyle change, as Dr. Prochaska, the leader in uh, Rhode Island, has shown us with smoking, when you make a lifestyle change, you go through these multiple phases contemplation, excuse me, pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, and maintenance. Now, it was interesting, since I had grown up on an Aberdeen Angus and a beef farm and a dairy farm, I was really kind of a cholesterolholic, shall we say. My father had his first heart attack at age 43, and uh, it was uh, not only was on the farm that was the risk to this disease, but obviously in the, our family's genes. Well, the long and the short of it was, uh, I kept putting off starting the study because I knew before I ever did the study, I would have to eat this way myself. And uh, I can tell you exactly after putting this off for a number of months, when this happened, when my wife and I were at a surgical meeting in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and the, uh, the papers were really rather dull and boring. The weather was terrible, but we always have a banquet after these uh, surgical meetings. And at the banquet, a waitress placed in front of me a plate of roast beef and the roast beef was so enormous, it was draped over the sides. And I took one look at that and shook my head and, and Ann said to me, are you not going to eat your roast beef? And I said, nope, this is it. And she said, well, then I'll have it. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, uh, sadly enough, at age 52, Ann's mother had died of, of breast cancer. And two weeks later, Ann's sister developed breast cancer. And she, that is Ann at that point, said to me, she looked at me and said, I'm with you. So from April of 1984 to the present day, we became plant-based. And after a year of doing this, uh, I felt that I was ready now to do this with some patients. So I spoke with the then chairman of the Department of Cardiology, asked if I could propose this research and have the cooperation of his team for about 24 patients. It had to be a small study because I still had my full obligation to my surgical duties. And so the study was small. And of course, I had no money for this study. So as my late brother-in-law used to say that these patients who came into this study were SEs walking dead. They had failed their first or second bypass. They had failed their first or second angioplasty. They were too sick for these procedures or they had refused. Five were told by their expert cardiologist that they would not live out the year. Those five made it close to 20 years. And we really began to see some very striking, exciting, not only uh, patients where the disease was halted, but we often saw striking examples of uh, disease reversal. Now, <clears throat> therefore, that study was published in 1995 in the... Uh, the Journal of Family Practice, and 
we were really rather, rather proud and excited to see the angiogram disease reversal. However, it led me to feel that we really ought to do a larger uh, study because even though this, I, I should mention <clears throat> about the first study that my great apprehension or, or fear was whether or not these uh, patients would adhere uh, to this kind of a, li a lifestyle change. And I decided to use as a mantra to help these patients adhere was the same mantra that I had been using for my cancer patients, which I had learned from a wonderful West Coast surgeon many years ago, a surgeon by the name of Bert Nutvey. And Bert used to say that patients with cancer are not afraid to suffer and patients with cancer are not afraid to die. But patients with cancer are afraid of being abandoned by their physician or by their family. So for the first five years of this study, I saw each of these 24 patients every <clears throat> two weeks in the office. We would check their cholesterol, their weight, their blood pressure, and I would review every morsel that they were eating during that two weeks. And then at the end of five years, I became a little bit more courageous and we stretched it out to see them once a month. Most cardiologists see their patients twice a year. Uh, by the end of 10 years, they were now pretty well on autopilot. So I stretched out the visits to quarterly. And then at 12 years, we, uh, we then was, ended the study and wrote up the results. Now, that uh, was at 12 years makes it probably one of the longest, if not the longest study of its type. And even though it was uh, very provocative and very exciting, we really took a hit there, obviously, because in reality, I, I am an enormous threat to medicine's biggest cash cow. Because when people eat to halt and reverse their heart disease, they don't need stents. They don't need bypass surgeries. And it's uh, really uh, so important, I think, if you're going to get patients to it here. We've changed the, the format a little bit now in that uh, so many of these patients uh, don't come from Cleveland. And they're coming throughout Canada, throughout the United States. And now we uh, do it by Zoom or virtually, as it were. And the key here, I think, is that if you're going to have a successful adherence to such a significant lifestyle change, you're going to have to show the patient respect. And the only way that I know to show a patient respect is to give them my time. So at present, we have a once a month, an intensive counseling seminar that's one single day it is five and a half hours. We limit this usually to 18 or 20 patients. They're all they're going to learn exactly how it is that they created their disease and precisely how we are going to empower them as the locus of control to halt and to reverse their disease. Since I'm a little bit old fashioned and compulsive about this and I hate failure, I asked my secretary to give me 10 days before the seminar begins, all 18 names and their phone numbers. And I personally call each patient so that I can have my arms around their story. And at the same time, provide them with an opportunity to ask questions of me. So that coming to the seminar, we have a strong platform from which we can move forward. A lot of standard cardiologists were uh, critical of our study saying the study was too small. Uh, it wasn't randomized, and the, the lifestyle change was such that patients <laughs> were not going to stick with it. And what made Dr. Esselstyn feel that he could repeat this study with a larger group and get similar results. So we did. And the next paper was written and published in the Journal of Family Practice in <clears throat> July of 2014. And the title of it was, Is Coronary Artery Disease Reversal? And again, we proved this time with 200 patients 
102 were lost to follow-up, so 198 patients. And in that group, the adherence or the compliance was uh, actually 89.3%, almost 90% compliance. And I think I'm going to share with you in a, in a minute uh, how it is that I think that uh, I want to frame, frame it so that the audience understands uh, how we do this. But I'm going to stop and let my wonderful host uh, interrupt me and ask any questions at this time. Well, I loved your story, and I, I love that you shared it with everyone. It is just so inspiring to know that people who came to you and were probably working out their last wishes with their families and making arrangements and were just kind of coming to you as just, well, I guess I'll just try this. You know, it was just their last resort. If you did nothing else after that, just when you by doing that and those lives that you changed just by that small smaller study that you did that is just so wonderful and it's so inspiring for people that are listening now to know that people who were turned away because they there wasn't anything else that their surgeon or cardiologist could do for them and that they still were able to extend their lives for quite quite a bit by following your guidelines so that the, that there's hope and I'm glad that you're sharing that with them. Now, you did write a book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And you pretty much spell out what people need to do. You did that because at the time, the only way to really work with you was to go to Cleveland. But now they can work with you virtually, which will also put information about that so that they can find out if they want to work with you virtually, how they can connect with you. For those that don't know what plant-based is, maybe you could explain what did you expect as far as the, what the people would have to well, we eliminate and also what you wanted them to include in order to mm. get these results? Yeah, excellent. I, uh, I think it's so important that your patients understand the science in, in a nomenclature and a presentation in which they can really get their arms around. By that, I mean, even all experts would agree that where this disease has its inception, its onset, its beginning, is when we progressively injure the life jacket and the guardian of our blood vessels, which happens to be that delicate innermost lining, which has a name called the endothelium. This is a one layer thick delicate cell that lines all the innermost part of our arteries. And the endothelium is truly where, the, when we injure the endothelium, that's where you have the inception, the onset, the beginning of cardiovascular disease because the endothelial cell manufactures a truly magic molecule of gas called nitric oxide. And it is nitric oxide which is responsible for the salvation and the protection of all of our blood vessels because of its remarkable functions, which include, one, nitric oxide will keep all the cellular elements within our bloodstream flowing smooth, smoothly like, like Teflon rather than Vel Velcro. Nitric oxide is the strongest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, <clears throat> the arteries to your heart, the arteries to your legs, they widen. They dilate. That's nitric oxide. Number three, nitric oxide is the str strongest, <clears throat> excuse me. Number three, nitric oxide will protect the wall of the artery from becoming thick and stiff or inflamed and will protect us from getting high blood pressure, hypertension. Number four, number four is the absolute key. A safe and normal amount of nitric oxide will protect us all from ever developing any blockages or plaque. So literally, everybody on the planet Earth, whether they're from London, Berlin, Chicago, New York, or Peoria, Illinois, if they have cardiovascular disease, it is because in the previous decades, they have so trashed, injured, compromised, and turned their endothelial cell into a train wreck that they no longer have enough nitric oxide to protect themselves from making these blockages and plaque. However, the good news is this. 
This is not a malignancy. This is a completely benign foodborne illness. And once you can get patients to understand that never, never, ever again are they to pass through their lips a single morsel that is going to further injure an already train-wrecked endothelium, then the endothelium begins to recover, makes enough nitric oxide so we can halt disease progression, and we often see significant elements of disease reversal. Now, the key, what are the foods that every time they pass your lips, you injure? The endothelial cell. One, any drop of oil, olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, oil in a cracker, oil in a piece of bread, oil in a salad dressing. Oil injures endothelial cells. And if you ever eat oil? <laughs> or animal protein, meat, fish, chicken, fowl, turkey, eggs, injure endothelium. And dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, and yogurt injures endothelium, as does sugary drinks, diet colas, Pepsi, and Coke. And we like to avoid sugary foods such as cakes, pies, cookies, stevia, agave, excesses of maple syrup, molasses, and honey. And I don't like nuts, peanut butter, nut butters, cashew sauce, or avocados. And finally, no coffee with caffeine. Decaf, yes, coffee with caffeine injures endothelial cells. All right, now, what, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat all these marvelous whole grains, W-H-O-L-E, whole grains for your cereal bread, pasta, rolls, and bagels, 101 different types of legumes, lentils, and beans, all these marvelous red, yellow, and green leafy vegetables, white potatoes, sweet potatoes, and some fruit. And there are wonderful recipes either in my book, the one by my wife and daughter, the Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease Cookbook, or <clears throat> books by John, Dr. John McDougall or Dr. Neil Barnard are all uh, wonderful and legally very protective of the whole food plant-based approach. Now, there's one thing that's so important to share with you at this point, and that is that you've heard me emphasize there are really, in this presentation, there are two words that you really have to carry home with you. This is, this is essential. One word is the endothelial cell. You've learned already. The endothelial cell makes nitric oxide. And the second word is nitric oxide. Now, the, the hurdle we're up against is that the nitric oxide production from the endothelial cell is age dependent. For example, you never heard of a boy or girl at age eight having a heart attack. Why? They have nitric oxide coming out of their ears. But by the time you're 50 years of age, even if you're absolutely beautifully healthy, your endothelial production of nitric oxide is 50% of what it was when you were age 25. By the time you're 80, you've lost 70% of the nitric oxide production from the endothelial cell. So in the last 10 years, we have tried to take advantage of two ways to enhance nitric oxide production. One, we, we are going to show you how you stimulate the endothelial production of nitric oxide. And at the same time, and with the same technique, take advantage of the research in the last 10 or 12 years that shows that mankind has an alternate pathway for making nitric oxide. So let's take the example. Let's suppose that you have had an angiogram and you've got some blockages in your coronary arteries. If I can get you to imagine shrinking your head to a size you could crawl, crawl inside that artery, you would see that blockage is an absolute cauldron of oxidative inflammation. So 
We need antioxidants. But no, do not go down to the health food store and buy a jug of pills that says antioxidant because it doesn't work and it's going to be harmful. I need you to get your antioxidants from food. Fair enough. What food? Food that is high in what we call ORAC value, O-R-A-C, oxygen radical absorptive capacity. Now, that means that if you're having raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, and blackberries on your morning oat cereal, that's a terrific start. However, nothing, nothing, nothing can trump the antioxidant value of green leafy vegetables. So I need you to chew, not smoothies or juicing. I need you to chew a green leafy vegetable, roughly half the size of your fist, after it has first been boiled in water or steamed, five and a half to six minutes, so it's nice and tender. Then you must anoint it with several drops of a delightful balsamic or rice vinegar. Why? Because research has shown us that the acetic acid from these two vinegars is able to restore the nitric oxide synthase enzyme contained within the endothelial cell that is responsible for making nitric oxide. So you're gonna chew this alongside your breakfast cereal, again, as a mid-morning snack, again, with your luncheon sandwich. And that's three, mid-afternoon, four, dinner time, five, and of course, I adore it when you have that evening snack of arugula and kale. Now, what's the second benefit from chewing this green leafy vegetable? It restores the capacity of your bone marrow to once again make the endothelial progenitor cell. What do the endothelial progenitor cells do? They replace our senescent, injured, worn out endothelial cells. Now the third benefit from chewing the green leafy vegetable, and this is absolutely the key. When you are chewing the green leafy vegetable, you are chewing a green nitrate. As you chew the green nitrate, it is going to mix with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the crypts and grooves of your tongue. And those bacteria are going to reduce the green nitrate that you're chewing to a nitrite. Now, when you swallow the nitrite, it is your own gastric acid, which is going to reduce the nitrite to more nitric oxide, which can enter your nitric oxide pool. So think about it. Minimal expense, no hideous side effects. What you are doing, Dawn to dusk, morning to night, all day long, you are absolutely restoring nitric oxide, the very molecule, the deficiency of which has given you this disease in the first place. Now, there is a caveat to this. Toothpaste with fluoride, public drinking water with fluoride, mouthwash will injure the beneficial bacteria in your mouth. And we do not like patients to have antacids, if, if, not, if not necessary, because antacids will reduce your gastric acidity and you will be unable to reduce the nitrite to more nitric oxide. Now, what are the green leafy vegetables that I'm talking about? They are bok choy, Swiss chard, kale, collard, collard green, beet greens, mustard green, turnip greens, napa, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, cilantro, parsley, spinach, and arugula, and asparagus. And <clears throat> the top five, no, the top six are kale, Swiss chard, <clears throat> spinach, arugula, beet greens, and beets. Look what it does for your memory. <laughs> 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 you know, I was trying to count on my fingers how many you were listing, and my fingers weren't count fast enough to keep up with what you were saying. So that that's amazing. <laughs> I had met someone who had heart disease, and I was trying to tell him about this lifestyle, and he was wearing this necklace 
like a chain around his neck and it had like a tube at the end of it. I asked him about it and inside of this little cylinder, he could unscrew it and open it up were these tiny little white pills. And he said that his doctor told him that he should carry them with him. So he had them hanging around his neck and I guess he would have to put that under his tongue. So is that something similar to what you're bathing yourself with? Well, it sounds like you're talking about somebody who's taking a, nit a nitroglycerin tablet, which yeah. acutely uh, helps to dilate the arteries so the patient can, can get, get over that episode. But, right. Uh, so, it, yeah, it, it almost uh, seems... Rather the patient, instead of uh, living on pills, we'd rather they live in a way that they can, shall we say, are trying to... Uh, reverse their uh, their heart disease. I mean, that's the see the, the the reason I think we're so successful when patients comply. Uh, ever since the days of Hippocrates, there's been a basic covenant of trust that, whenever possible, the caregiver will share with the patient what is the causation of the illness. And sadly, today in cardiovascular medicine, that's not being done. Why? Because neither in medical school nor in their postgraduate training. The cardiologist ever receive education about nutrition. As a matter of fact, it was five years ago that I was invited by the American College of Cardiology to become a member. Why? They wanted me to join their nutrition committee. Why? Because we want to try to educate cardiologists about the causation of the illness they're being designated to treat. And I think it's I think it's going to happen. But it's it's really slow. It's like trying to turn around the Queen Mary. That's what it's all about is is not depending on these pills. And and I just felt so bad for that person that I was talking to you about because, you know, he was so concerned about an episode that he was carrying this thing around his neck when if he could just discover your recommendations and just constantly bathe himself, bathe his arteries with this, this greens. Nitro with nitric oxide. That's it. Right. But that's the way the body was meant to absorb these things and probably much of much better of a choice. That's a wonderful recommendation. Now, some people talk about smoothies. I think that one reason why people ask about smoothies is because some people, especially if they age, they may have some challenges in chewing. You want to talk about smoothies and then also how someone who may have a full set of dentures that not necessarily is operational because I've seen people who are denture wearers actually not even wear them because their dose don't really work very well. So what could somebody who's chewing challenge do? Yeah, the reason I'm not a great fan of smoothies, they're not, it's not impossible. Obviously there's wonderful nutrients. The problem with uh, smoothies, uh, see if you're trying to get green leafy vegetables into people, when you grind up all those uh, or package of greens, it's going to be pretty tart. And that's going to be a bit of a turnoff if, it's, if the smoothie is so tart. So most people make it with bananas and uh, an orange and an apple. Now, I have no problem with people eating a banana, orange, or an apple because when you're eating it as a fruit, the sugar or the fructose is bound to the fiber and the absorption through the intestine is really gradual and quite slow. However... When you make a smoothie and you beat up an apple and you beat up the orange and a banana, now what you've done is you've separated the fructose from <clears throat> the fiber. And so when it hits your stomach, it goes off like a rocket, injures the liver, glycates protein, and injures, endo and injures the endothelial cell, which is kind of the, the adverse of what we, uh, we really want to see. Now, people do have the trouble with ill-fitting dentures, and they can't chew, I would suggest they see their dentist and get the fix so they are not ill-fitting. I think that's a very good recommendation. I think sometimes, just like with heart disease, people have a medical issue, including ill-fitting dentures, and they just kind of give up instead of seeking out somebody else that could probably help them if they would just keep looking. And if they would just keep looking, they would stumble upon a broadcast like this or, or oh, stumble upon you. If they are reluctant to get their teeth fixed, but they still try to train themselves to have the smoothie without, without the uh, without the fruit, without all the sugar. Because, I mean, this is something that is health-promoting and it's very important to do. And, and as your studies have shown, if people do this six times a day, it can really change things around. You were talking about uh, oil, and we know that you don't think that oil is health-promoting and that it shouldn't be a part of the lifestyle at all. Then you talked to, uh, I think you talked about a little 
Did you talk about nuts? That's I think that would be another question that people might have. Yeah, uh, what there, do you feel about nuts? there are a number of studies that uh, claim that nuts are uh, are helpful from the cardiovascular standpoint. However, nuts have an awful lot of saturated fat, number one. And if I ever said that somebody could have three walnut halves on their cereal, if I ever said that, that's not what people would hear. They, people would say, Dr. Esselstyn said that nuts are all right. Now, nuts are having to be very addicting. And if people think that you can have nuts, they're going to be in the glove compartment. They'll be in the kitchen, the bathroom, the bedroom, the hallway, the living room. And suddenly you get a, a huge amount of, of uh, saturated fat. The other thing that I think is really most provocative of all is that most of the, or many of the studies that are propounding the benefits of nuts, if you look carefully at the author's relationships, they're often employed by the nut industry, which makes it a little bit of an enormous conflict. And the other thing is of interest, I have yet to see a single study of patients who are seriously ill with heart disease offered nuts as a regular part of their program and ever have that halt and reverse disease, heart disease. There are a lot of people that if they, if they had nuts in the house, it would be definitely a trigger where it would be difficult to resist the temptation. No, I mean, it's so, because yeah. those people will quote the studies that say that nuts are bene beneficial, they're, meaning that they're not as harmful as other things. Well, why, <clears throat> why eat anything that's going to eat, injure further the endothelium? Remember, the two words that I want your audience to take home are the endothelial cell and nitric oxide. And that's the whole focus of, uh, of the approach and which has been so effective. We'll... Uh, We'll compete our results with anybody on the planet. And although, I, <laughs> although, although I've been told I can be a taskmaster, I've also been told that I'm not quite as mean as I look. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you are a taskmaster because you're definitely helping people. Brenda Clement, besides B12, what other supplements do you take? I don't know if she wants to know what you I take or if you, what you recommend. Uh, maybe a thousand of, of my, my micrograms of B12 would be appropriate uh, would you, because you don't want to, as you become more senior, you, you don't want your B12 levels to drift away. Uh, and you can check your vitamin D and if it's low, maybe take a modest dose, 2000 international units. But between vitamin B12 and D, I think that's, that's all at the present time. I think the jury is still out on, uh, on everything else. And there is a, there are, there are some very good uh, authors who have reviewed this whole supplement business and say, feel that other than B12, there's very little indication to, uh, to get carried away with supplements. You'll spend a lot of money, and it's, it's really questionable whether they're going to be beneficial or not. Jacob B., I followed your plan and have not eaten in restaurants for over one year. What do you recommend for stubborn hypertension? Yeah, stubborn hypertension. Well, be uh, be sure that your weight is normal. You're not carrying any extra weight or fat because that uh, contributes to inflammation, which is going to contribute to the hypertension. And the other thing is to uh, be sure that you rule out all the other unusual causes of hypertension. Do you have a hyperaldosteronism and maybe get a 24-hour 24 urine check to be, that's, which is the most accurate way to find out whether or not uh, you have an uh, aldosterone producing uh, condition. As I say, the key is to keep keep the weight off. You, it's, so often that can be a culprit. And the other thing that's been suggested is to take a uh, half a teaspoon of amla uh, daily, which is uh, amla is A M L A. It's from the gooseberry. Supposed to be good for triglycerides and hypertension. Well, that's a really good tip. I, I know that there are people that talk a lot about inflammation and, you know, we're talking about heart disease today, but inflammation anywhere, I suppose, if you still have extra body fat, that even if you're trying to follow a healthy plant-based lifestyle and you're adding all these kinds of things that will help with inflammation, 
if you're still carrying extra body fat, are you saying that your own body fat is also contributing to the inflammation? Yeah, the body body fat does contribute to inflammation. Yes. And a rise cova, I hope. Dr. Esselstyn, somewhere I saw you don't recommend nuts, seeds, and avocado, where you say it's okay about those foods. Is it? Well, now I'm confused what they're saying I said. <laughs> I didn't, I think it's important. The patients who do not have heart disease, yes, they certainly can have they can have nuts, they can have avocado and so forth. Is that clear? I think that's clear. And what causes high triglycerides to be high on a whole food plant-based diet, SOS, which is sugar, oil, salt-free, what can a person do to reduce them? Yeah, uh, be sure you get rid of, especially uh, alcohol, any kind of sugary drinks, uh, any uh, smoothies, but notorious for that. Uh, and of course, any simple carbohydrates, white bread, white flour, any, any excesses of uh, stevia, agave, excesses of maple syrup, molasses, and honey. Those kinds of things are notorious for raising triglycerides. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes uh, taking the omelet powder, half a teaspoon daily will, uh, will help knock down the triglycerides. You can't eat those simple carbohydrates. Yeah, that'll, that'll raise it. Right. And I think that people may not realize that they go out to eat or, or what have you, that there, there are times that they'll take in and they think it's just a little here and a little there, but it can add up. Well, going out going out to eat is a, is a challenge for the patients who have heart disease, but it can be done. For instance, if you, uh, when you waiter, waiter or the waitress comes to your table, don't look at the menu and say, I, I don't really want oil. That doesn't work. You turn in your chair. You make eye contact with the waiter or the waitress, and you look them in the eye and you say, I am deathly allergic to a drop of any oil. Now you can look over the menu with them and suddenly you find out that lo and behold, there's not a single item on the menu that doesn't have oil, all right, which is not unusual, but you don't give up. So you ask for the chef and the chef, he or she comes out and understands that you can't have a drop of oil, no animal protein, no dairy, and no sugar. And the chef smiles and says, I'll be back in 20 minutes, and here comes a wonderful plate of beans and rice. Or it might be a baked potato with some vegetable. So going to a restaurant is never an indication to further destroy an already train wrecked endothelial system. I like that. I like that a lot. I think about how when people might get, a, they notice that they're driving and their tire is starting to feel like it's low. And the recommendation is always, as soon as you realize that, pull over. Don't keep driving on that tire. I think that that's kind of a, an analogy to what you're talking about. Victoria B., please expand upon eliminating grains for stubborn cholesterol. What can I eat instead? Which do I eliminate or add back in first? Yeah, interesting question. It's, uh, everybody is going to be a little bit different in this. But <clears throat> what we've tried on occasion with somebody who says, Dr. Esselstyn, we've been pure with your diet, but my cholesterol won't come down at all. It never goes below 220. Well, that's a, a couple of points I want to make. If we had a thousand people who absolutely followed our program to a T, everybody's going to be different. Everybody has a different thermostat in their liver for making cholesterol. There will be some who will have a total cholesterol of 102, some at 130, 160, 180, 200, 220. But your liver wasn't made to produce so much cholesterol that it would give you heart disease. Your liver is, trying, is going to behave itself. But what, ha what happens is that when you eat in a way that you destroy the endothelial capacity to make nitric oxide, now with a lack of nitric oxide, your endothelial lining becomes splintered with holes and gaps and crevices. Cholesterol creeps through, gets into the subendothelial space begins this whole process of oxidative inflammation and plaque formation. And now you're off and running with that. So uh, when you 
when we have taken a few, uh, several people and who are, let's say have a cholesterol 240, 220, it's stubborn. Just for two weeks, we asked them to eliminate absolutely every grain, just for two weeks. No grains. Let energy, your energy food has to almost now be largely potatoes, although all, of, all the other wonderful foods will help contribute, but to make up for that lack of, of uh, energy production from the grain, we can get it from the potato for those two weeks. And we've seen drops of between 30 and 40%. Now, what do you do when you get a drop? And you start, you start back in and create the whole problem again. No, you can try to be a little selective and see if you can't, uh, when you start back in, uh, start with something like brown rice and then have your cholesterol checked in another two weeks. Now, if you're going to do this with each grain, I don't want you to have to go to your doctor to get a cholesterol every week. So often what the patients do is they or either to a drugstore or over the internet, they'll buy these home cholesterol determination kits where you just do a little, little tiny finger prick and you'll get, and they're actually really quite reliable in, in, in terms of their uh, accuracy. And then you can get an idea of, of whether this shifting in their grains, because it may find that it just, your level will stay as low with brown rice. You might not have to add too many other grains. You might then, then decide you're gonna add something like barley or rye, check it again. So these are just some, some thoughts, but remember this. There have been many, many patients who came to our seminar who long before they came to the seminar, they discovered they simply couldn't take a statin. It absolutely gave them horrible cramps. It injured their liver. It gave them diabetes or it gave them brain fog. So they had to abandon their statin. And interestingly enough, and you'll see this in my book. Even those patients, if they follow the program, they're absolutely fine. Do you suppose the people in Okinawa, rural China, are taking statins, or Central Africa are taking statins? Where's their heart disease? No heart disease. Why? They're thriving on whole food, plant-based nutrition without oil. It's almost shameful to think that the medical profession in this country has known for a hundred years, there are multiple cultures on the planet Earth where cardiovascular disease is virtually non-existent. Why? They thrive on whole food, plant-based nutrition. What has happened in this country, especially since the turn into the 20th century, 1910, 1920, everything began to have oil. Suddenly it was so popular to make these processed foods. We got along away from eating food as grown. And people uh, often ask about ingredients. You never have to worry about ingredients if you're eating the produce. If you're eating bok choy, Swiss chard, kale, collards, collard greens, beet greens, mustard greens, turnip greens, you don't have to read anything. They never have an ingredient list. If you're living out of a box, a bag, or a can, a, a can now we got a challenge. Now we got a problem. Well, that's great advice. And yes, if it has a label, then that could be one of the reasons why you might be having a challenge reducing your cholesterol or blood pressure. Let's see our next question. Brenda Clement, is it true that too much spinach, chard, or beet greens can be harmful? Other plant-based doctors have stated this. Maybe that's about the oxalates or something? Yeah, yeah, there is, uh, there, is, there is some concern with patients who are chronically are producing kidney stones uh, oxalate, but the, all you have to do is simply look at the, uh, you, you look at your, uh, go over the internet and look at the list of green vegetables and take, take those that are low in oxalate. You want to eliminate, for an example, eliminate spinach, but really other than that, we've been doing this now for 34 years and it just has never been a problem. Karen Trudeau. How do you feel about soy products? How often are they okay to eat? Yeah, I think the soy, uh, soy has in some ways gotten a bad name, but it, it is GMO. It is 40% fat. So, you know, you have to 
keep that in mind when you're when you're eating soy. Stephen Harlan, uh, Dr. Stephen Harlan, uh, Dr. Esselstyn, what's your position on baby aspirin, 81 milligrams daily, risk, benefit, or protective in some patients? Yeah, aspirin has is, is got to be some sort of a mantra with the cardiovascular community because uh, no question they don't want to have clots forming over the stent. And they have, if patients have significant disease, they feel that thinning the blood with uh, aspirin is going to have some protective effect. I think that's been documented. On the other hand, uh, what doesn't, what is, is not taken into account is the fact that the aspirin is usually being recommended because patients are eating the hypercoagulable American diet. And interestingly enough, when you're eating whole food, plant-based nutrition, the blood is naturally thin. So my uh, thoughts on this are that usually after somebody is, uh, let's say, a year away from an event, then maybe they've had a stent, maybe they've had a bypass, maybe they've had angioplasty or they've had bypass surgery, things are stable and they have learned and they're competently eating whole food, plant-based nutrition it's nice to have them gradually uh, get away from aspirin because, like it or not, aspirin is not a piece of candy. That is a serious drug. And there can be some brutal uh, side effects from aspirin, a cerebral hemorrhage, gastrointestinal hemorrhage, and then often not talked, to, talked about, but nevertheless is significant is the injury to macular degeneration, which leads to blindness. So I'm, uh, I guess I'm rather somewhat sanguine about the use of aspirin, but I like to have patients when things are otherwise stable, they, they can be weaned off this. They're willing to go fully on whole food plant-based nutrition. If they are going to continue to eat the hypercoagulable Western diet, they may have to take it. Right. The, the greater the efficacy, the greater the toxicity in as far as in, in drugs. And uh, is asking, cacao is also bad for endothelial cells? And that's cocoa. That, that, that's clean. That's fine. As long as it's not in the chocolate candy bar or something, yeah, right? <laughs> Please ask lovely Anne to come say hello. Anne, we have, I don't know if she can hear There's us, but we, we've been wondering what she's cooking. And, and <laughs> they have a question. Yeah. You. Yeah. They want to say hello. Well, I'm not gonna, yeah. Come on, they want you right now. Yeah. <laughs> they want to ask you a question. She's she's bashful. They want to know what you're I'll cooking. Trans I'll, tra I'll, I'll transfer it. So Brenda wants to know what is Ann cooking or preparing? And putting baked potato, sweet potatoes in the oven. Making a salad, putting baked sweet potatoes in the oven. For dinner. That's right. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. See, there are your greens right there. Uh, Anna said, thank you so very much. We've been kind of watching every once in a while when Anne is in the kitchen <laughs> and wondering what's cooking because Anne has a YouTube channel. She makes a lot of wonderful things. So I guess they were wondering what she's making. And sometimes when you're eating in this lifestyle, sometimes it's just baked potatoes and a nice salad. It doesn't yeah, always have to be a fancy. got a great cucumber dr salad dressing with cucumbers and garlic and vinegar and mustard and hummus oh that sounds really good and that's what it is it's all in the sauce right you can eat all those greens if you just have a, a healthy dressing or sauce on top of it and Anne has a wonderful cookbook we'll put a link to that also in the show notes since we have a lot of people commenting saying hello and saying that they're really glad that you're here and they're very much enjoying the presentation and it was a special treat i was Dr. Stephen Harlan, great presentation, great hosting interview. Thank you. And it was a real treat to have Anne come on and say hi, too. I wanted to thank you, Dr. Esselstyn. And everybody remember, it's Dr. Esselstyn. That's how you say his name. And we want to make sure that you know that. Thank I want to thank you, Dr. Esselstyn, for... <laughs> for being on the green with Amy. It was a pleasure. Is there anything that you wanted to say? I think that really mm -hmm. uh, the reason I remain so uh, optimistic about uh, the field of medicine is that it truly 
I think we are on the, the brink of what could be a seismic revolution in health. And this seismic revolution in health is never going to come about through the invention of another pill or drug. And it, uh, it's never going to come about from the invention of another procedure or another operation. However, the seismic revolution in health will come about when we in the profession have the will, the grit, and the determination to share with the public what is the lifestyle, and most specifically, what is the nutritional literacy that will empower them as the locus of control to halt and eliminate chronic illness. Thank you, Amy. Good job. Keep up the work. <laughs> you heard it. Thank you, Dr. Esselstyn. You heard it from Dr. Esselstyn. If this is going to be the day, this is the, going to be the day that you're going to seize the day and change the trajectory of your life. Listen to what Dr. Esselstyn was talking about and adopt this lifestyle, tighten those screws and really be diligent about what you pass through your lips so that you can have a healthy outcome. I hope that this has inspired you to do that. And maybe you can share this with others who you're trying to inspire. I wanted to let you know that we're going to have a special announcement coming up. I also wanted to thank Rebecca from PKA Solve. She's been engineering in the background, helping us with the comments and so forth. And it's been lovely. Hi, Rebecca. Good to see you. I wanted to thank Jess from Jess Ta's Voice. She did the countdown and the promotionals. But most of all, I wanted to thank all of you. Having Dr. Esselstyn on this broadcast was such an honor. And if it wasn't for you guys showing up, I don't know if he would have had enough time to speak with me today. So it was really a treat. And you're so important in getting this word out, sharing it with others, share this broadcast, like, subscribe. And we're going to be talking with Dr. Esselstyn before he goes, and he's going to be joining me with my tagline. And I would like for you guys to do the same. And so while we do that, if you can type in the comments, be strong, be well, and be green. That would be great. And then we could just kind of do it as this family on online. This interview made my week. Thank you both, said Brenda. Thank you. Just toss voice. What's coming up next? Coming up next, Kristen Mack is a registered nurse, a board-certified health coach, and a plant-based meal prep enthusiast. Join us for a culinary demo on Friday, June 18th, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Be Green with Amy Live. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Esselstyn, and thank all of you for joining us. And until we see you again, remember, be strong, be well, and be green. Bye-bye, <laughs> everyone.